This sermon was preached by Peter Nakotra, head pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven, Queens. Grace Baptist was planted in 2001 and is seeking to reach South Queens and North Brooklyn with the gospel. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.gbcny.org. Please feel free to distribute the sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Well, if you have a bulletin, you'll see in the back of the bulletin, I titled this sermon, The Kangaroo Court. The Kangaroo Court. And the definition of a kangaroo court is it is a judicial tribunal or assembly that blatantly disregards recognized standards of law and justice. So it is a court that basically gives the appearance of being fair, but is anything from fair. Since the outcome has already been determined, and this happens all the time, and it happens all over the place. People have been falsely accused and were brought up on trumped-up charges and then lawlessly condemned or imprisoned and even executed by kangaroo courts. Happens to Christians and political opponents and those who go against the regime, whatever that is. There was a judge from 1977 to 1991. His name was Thomas Mahoney in Cook County, Illinois. And this man ran a kangaroo court. Right? He ran a kangaroo court, but he took all kinds of bribes, fixing all kinds of murder cases, acquitting hitmen and mafia leaders all for a price. Uh, even though there was unbelievable evidence that these people were, 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 were guilty. So Mahoney fixed those trials. Uh, so kangaroo court then is an unjust, unfair, biased, corrupt, illegal judicial proceeding. And there was no more unjust, unfair, unbiased, or biased, corrupt, illegal trial than the ones that the one that the Jewish authorities held against Jesus. It was fueled by hell. It was brewed in hatred. And it was against the most holy, true, and innocent man that ever lived. Well, the setup of our text today is that Jesus has finished praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is now prepared in his inner man to undertake to undertake the work of redemption for fallen men and to drink the cup that the Father has given him. And so he confronts the multitude that has come to arrest him and he asks them who they're looking for. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And when he identifies himself as, I am, they are driven backwards into the ground because they are given just a glimpse, a glimpse of his majestic glory. Right? And as they get up uh, and seek to take him, Peter impulsively cuts off uh, Malchus's right ear, which Jesus immediately heals, and he tells Peter to put the sword away because this is not how my kingdom is advanced or is it how it is defended. Then he speaks to the multitudes, and he exposes their sin and their cowardice to them uh, as he allows himself to be bound by them and taken. And we end verse 56 with the apostles all scattering in fear, which he had predicted just hours before and verses before. And now in verses 57 to 68, we have Jesus being taken to the high priest, to the home of the high priest, and then put on trial before the Sanhedrin. I want to look at that, that time that he's taken and put before the, the Sanhedrin uh, in, in a simple three-point outline. If you have the, a bulletin, it'll be on the back of the bulletin, the unjust trial, the just testimony, and the unjust verdict. And so let's look now in verses 57 to 61, the unjust trial. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, the high priest's courtyard. And he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many witnesses, many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. Alright, so verse 57 says, Those who laid hold of Jesus take him to Caiaphas, the high priest's place. But we know from the Gospel of John that before he's taken to Caiaphas, he's actually taken to Annas first. And we read that in John chapter 18. Verses 12 to 14. Then the detachment of troops, remember Rome had given them a, a, a cohort, 600 soldiers, 
And the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him away to Annas first. For uh, so he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Right? Now Annas was the high priest 20 years before this. And he was only high priest for five years. And Rome actually put him in position, and then Rome took him out of the position. And commentators believe the reason why Rome took him out was because he was gaining too much power, too much influence. But after he's taken out, actually his five sons after him served as high priest, and then his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So it was kept in the family. But the reality was this. The reality was that Annas still called the shots. He's still the main guy. He didn't have the title of high priest, but he was kind of the guy that was calling the shots of the high priest. And he was an extremely powerful man. And he was a very wealthy man. And the reason he was so wealthy, one of the reasons, was because he profited from and he ran the money changers and the sellers of animals for sacrifices in the temple. In fact, those things were known as the bazaars of Annas. And so you can see the motive here why Annas hates him and has, and has this desire for his death and for his blood. Because just four days before, Jesus has cleansed the temple of the money changers and of those who sold animals on the, most, the busiest week of the year, the week of the Passover. And in the process of doing that, Jesus condemned the Jewish leaders, which of course would have had Annas at the top of it, as being of making the temple of God a den of thieves. Well, they bring Jesus to Annas, and his task is to find something to accuse Jesus of, to find something to bring some charge that they could levy against Jesus and put him to death. And try as Annas may, he couldn't find anything. So he disappointedly sends him to Caiaphas' house. And that's where we pick up Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Now you need to know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John need to be put together here to get a full picture of what's going on. And it will help us to understand what's going on that night. Now from the time that Jesus ends his prayer in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, uh, which is sometime around midnight, to the time of the cross is really only about nine hours. Only like nine hours is passing. But in those nine hours, Jesus actually had six trials or six investigations or six examinations. Three of them were ecclesiastical or before the Jewish leaders, and three of them were civic or before the Roman governing authorities. And the chronology goes something like this. Jesus is first sent to Annas for some sort of an indictment around midnight. Annas finds none. He sends him to Caiaphas, who has most of the Sanhedrin with him, sometime between 1 and 3 a.m. in the morning. All right? uh, and, 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 they, and they indict him of some crime, and the crime they indict him of is actually blasphemy. But to make it legal, and I'll talk about this in a minute, they have to meet again. The Sanhedrin's got to come back together again around 6 in the morning to make it legal. And then they bring him to Pilate, again about 6, 6.30 in the morning, because the Jews cannot put anyone to death. So they, they bring, so they bring him to Pilate. Pilate then sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate. And then he eventually is crucified, and the crime they convict him of is sedition. Now Luke tells us that the Sanhedrin, uh, that they are assembled at Caiaphas' house when Jesus is brought there. And the Sanhedrin were the 71 ruling religious leaders of Israel. They were like the Supreme Court, if you will, of Israel. And they were com comprised of chief priests and scribes and Pharisees and elders. Uh, and the overseer or the president of the Sanhedrin was the high priest, who officially in this case was Caiaphas. And the Sanhedrin had very specific rules and procedures in how they were to hear and try cases. And their system really was set up very heavily in the area of mercy and caution, especially concerning capital cases. All right? And thus they were, they were the jury and the judge, but they were never to be the prosecutors. Well, with that said, the Sanhedrin broke all of their rules and all of their laws to condemn Jesus. This whole thing stinks with injustice. It makes our Justice Department, our FBI, our highest governing officials look like a bunch of honest Johns. It really does. You see, the thing with them was they already had the verdict. They had the verdict, they were set on the verdict, and they had the verdict months and months before when Lazarus was raised from the dead. And if you remember, back in John 11, after Jesus raises Lazarus, some of the Jews go back to the Sanhedrin and say, oh, 
What are we going to do? This guy is doing amazing things. Nobody can, nobody can, can speak against the fact that he raised Lazarus. Everybody knows it. Right? And so the, the Jewish leaders are beside themselves. What are we going to do? We're going to lose our place and our place in the nation and Rome's going to come and take it away. And then Caiaphas says this in John 11:49 and 50. He said, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. So from that point on, they are bent. They are bent on killing Jesus, but they still need a charge. They need a charge. Now let me give you some of the laws of their own laws, the Sanhedrin broke to condemn Jesus. First of all, it was illegal to be brought before Annas for a secret examination. Annas was not the high priest, nor could any man be tried by one man that was not allowed. Uh, nor could a man be tried at night. The Sanhedrin could only hear cases from sunup to sundown. That was it. And Jesus is brought before, it says the whole Sanhedrin, but I would have to believe that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, because they were, eventually, we know they're believers, I don't believe they're there. Right? But most of them are there. Right? And, 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 and they're doing this at nighttime in the middle of the night. Right? And I'm guessing that when Caiaphas has, has all of the Sanhedrin on standby, so that when Judas comes to him and says, okay, here's where he is. He's either in the upper room and not there. I know he's going to be in the garden. And he has those guys on standby. And as soon as, soon as Judas comes to, to Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin all scurry over to Caiaphas' house. Also, the Sanhedrin were not allowed to judge a capital offense on the day before the Sabbath or on any day before a national feast. They weren't allowed to do that. Yet, Jesus was tried on Friday, the day before the Sabbath. He was also tried on the day of the Passover. Also, a person convicted of a capital offense could not be executed on the same day. They could not even be executed on the following day. There had to be two days from the time of the verdict. There had to be a day between, a, a day between the, the conviction and the actual crucifixion or murder. Right? And on that day in between, it was a day when the Sanhedrin was supposed to fast and supposed to pray and supposed to allow for any evidence that was not given so far. Listen, this was the, the let's make dead sure before we put a man to death. We'll turn over every stone. Remember, we... we, we, we um, you know, we side on the part of mercy and justice. They didn't do that. They didn't do that at all. They're convicting Jesus between 1 and 3 in the morning and by 9 o'clock he's going to the cross. Also, the accused was always allowed to have a defense and to call witnesses. In fact, the trial was supposed to open with someone speaking on behalf of, of, of the person being convicted and, and on behalf of their innocence. And then witnesses would come and be brought against them. That's how it was supposed to go. But Jesus had no defense. Nobody was speaking on his behalf. Also, Jewish law forbid an individual being tried by the Sanhedrin in any place apart from their normal meeting place. And their normal meeting place was called the Hall of Hoon Stone. And that was in the temple precincts. But we know this meeting happened in the middle of the night and in Caiaphas' house. Also, in Jewish law, a person could never be convicted on their own testimony. You can never be convicted on your own testimony. You need two witnesses, at least two witnesses, right? You could never incriminate yourself. You just couldn't do it. They wouldn't allow it. And we know that the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus on his own testimony on who he was. And lastly, and there were many more, by the way, but these are the big ones. Only testimony that was fully agreed on by two witnesses were, was permissible. And we get this back from Deuteronomy 19.15. Right? And the witnesses had to be examined separately, and they had to be in total agreement on a ton of things. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, we agree, he's the same guy. No, time, place, and a ton of specifics. A ton of specifics. And the punishment for giving false testimony was that you would receive whatever that person was, was going to receive if he was guilty. So if, if you were found guilty giving false testimony in a capital case, guess what you got as being a false witness? Murder. You were put to death. Alright? And this was to deter lying. It was set up again always to show mercy and to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. Right? That's why it was, that's what was set up. So as you could see, 
The Jewish leaders broke law after law after law when they tried Jesus. Right? The secret investigation before Annas, the Sanhedrin meeting at midnight at Caiaphas' house. Jesus was allowed no defense. They convict him and execute him in less than nine hours. And they bribed a ton of false witnesses to do this. So this is the most corrupt trial in the history of man. Every aspect of it stinks. It makes Benghazi and Watergate and Bridgegate and 30,000 lost emails and any other thing you can come up with look like a tea party. It was corrupt, corrupt, corrupt from start to finish. Because it was a foregone conclusion for the Sanhedrin. It was a foregone conclusion. We're putting this guy to death. And yet at the same time, at the same time, this is God's will that he go to his death. It is God's will. Well, in verse 59, the Sanhedrin meet, and we read that they are seeking false testimony against Jesus, testimony that, of course, will condemn him. Again, remember, they have the verdict. They just need, they need the, the, char- the, the charge. Uh, and and, and they, they bring forth, forth all these false witnesses, but their testimony doesn't match, so they can't use it. Twice we read in verse 60. Twice we read, but they found none. And you're going to see this now from the rest of 26 all the way through 27. Innocent. Nothing, no charge against him. Pilate's going to say it twice. Herod's going to say it. Nobody can find anything against him. And that's because there is nothing to find against him. He is innocent. He is pure. He is holy. He is the spotless Lamb of God. And he must be. He must be. He has never sinned. He has never said anything or did anything that anyone could ever accuse him of. And this is amazing when you think about it because he is a very public figure for over three years and people are always flocking around him and they're listening to him. And a lot of his disciples actually live with him. And they watched him and they, and they scrutinized him and he was certainly being scrutinized by the Jewish leaders. Yet there wasn't a single thing that anyone could accuse him of. Just think for a second of our elected officials and for those running for offices. There is an encyclopedia of accusations that can be levied against any of them. It's just a laundry list for these guys and girls. Right? But nobody could come up with anything against Jesus because there's nothing to come up with. But the Sanhedrin keeps sending in false witnesses in hope that something would stick. And people for the last 2,000 years have been speaking lies or been a false witness against Jesus in hopes that they could oust him from his throne and out of their lives. Right? They don't want him to be their king. They don't want him to be their God and their Messiah. They don't want him to be their Savior and their Lord. They want him out of their lives. So they accuse him of things, of being narrow-minded. He's too exclusive. He is unloving for allowing suffering in the world. Right? People think that he owes them something. People think that. Somebody told me recently that God was petty. I said, why do you say that? Oh, because he wants us to do what he wants us to do. And then if we don't do it, right, he's going to throw us into hell. I said, who are you, oh man, to speak against God? I said, does God owe you something? Well, I said, he doesn't owe owe you the next heartbeat. In fact, if he does owe you something, he owes you the wages of your sin. You ought to be grateful he hasn't given you that yet. Right? But they accuse him of things. Narrow-minded, exclusive, unloving. Right? They say he's unloving because they don't think that a God would ever send anyone to hell. Why would he do that? They accuse him of being narcissistic, demanding that people follow him and love him. How could you demand people love you? Right? They say only someone who is full of themselves would say something like, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Who would say that? And listen, people give false testimony against Jesus when they take his words and they twist them and they spin them for their own sinful purposes, ultimately justifying their consciences while they are immersed in their sin. And some bear false testimony against him just by flat out discounting his word. It's written by men. You can't trust that. It's been tampered with. It can't be trusted. It's a ploy. It's a ploy of the church to keep men under their thumbs. And this is what I hear all the time. You're just looking to make money. We're out on the streets preaching the gospel. And how many people come by and say, all you guys want is money. I said, you see my cars? You see my wardrobe? You'd say something different. 
You see my watch? And you know what, though? Before you and I were saved, we were false witnesses, too, against Jesus. We spoke against His Word, too. We lived against His Word, too. And we approved of others who did so as well. Right? We may have given him a verbal nod, but our actions spoke against him. Well, lie after lie after lie is spewed out against him. And then two witnesses come forward, but they have some similarities. One witness says in verse 61, Jesus says, Jesus said, I am able to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Mark says, another witness says, uh, that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. And in verse 59 of Mark 14, it says there, but not even then did their testimony agree. And let me show you how. In Matthew, he says, I am able, I am able to destroy the temple. And Mark, he says, I will destroy the temple. Big difference there. Right? In Matthew, he says, and he goes, I will build it in three days. And in Mark, he says, and within three days, I will build another made without hands. And you see, there had to be an exact replica Right? The witnesses had to agree on, on almost everything. And so, these discrepancies are too big, and so they're, they're not a good testimony. They can't be used. And here's the thing. They both misconstrued what Jesus actually said anyway, which is what Derek read in John 2, 19 and 21. Right? This is after he cleanses the temple the first time. Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, which I just cleansed, and in three days I will raise, I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus wasn't talking about the physical building. He was talking about his body. He was talking about, you guys are going to kill me and you're going to crucify me and you're going to put me on a cross. But let me tell you, I'll go to the grave, but I'm not going to stay there. I'm coming back. I'll defeat sin and death can't hold me. I will rise again. And, and it's going to happen in hours. And then in days he'll be up. And rest assured that Satan and the demons, they stirred up the fury of hell against them. And they stirred up the Sanhedrin against them. Already, Satan has already entered Judas to do what he wanted to do. And they stirred up false witnesses to condemn him. But there were none, and listen, there were none. There were none who could find anything against him. But listen, even... Even if there could have been even one who actually found Jesus guilty of something, some small iota of something, then guess what? Satan wins. Then guess what? You and I are bound for hell this day. And guess what? The gates of hell are bolted shut forever. And Jesus' crucifixion, quite honestly, would have been a, a waste of time and the careless, careless death. Because God's Lamb had to be spotless, had to be without defect, had to be without sin. You see, He had to be sinless in order to pay for the sins of a flawed people like you and like me. Yet the Sanhedrin fought hard to find false testimony against Him. Instead of seeking to find out the truth about Him, they sought to destroy Him. I remember... I remember when I first met Chris Giroux, I don't know, 1990 something now, and he told me, he told me the story. He said when he first met Rebecca, Chris was not a believer, uh, and Rebecca was, and he liked her, and he, he was attracted to her, and he wanted to go out, and she said, I'm not going to go out with you. She goes, I'm a Christian and you're not. Then he said, well, can I go to church? She said, you can go to my church, but you can't go with me. She goes, I don't want to lead you on to think there's something, there's something there. Young people, pay attention to that. Well, how about single people? And so he went to her church with the goal of proving Christianity wrong. He said, I'm going to go, and I'm going to listen, I'm going to start reading the Bible, because I'm a really smart guy, and he's brilliant, by the way. I'm a really smart guy, and I'm going to figure out, and I'm going to find the flaws and the holes in this Christian thing and prove it wrong, and then I'm going to show her how wrong it is to prove to her that she shouldn't trust in it anyway, and therefore she should go out with me. And so he was on this quest to search the Scriptures to find the flaws in Christianity. He wanted to find something that he could show us. See this? How do you answer that? It's wrong. How could you trust this thing you call Christianity? But, but guess what? Guess what he found? Guess what he found? 
Somebody tell me what he found. He found Christ. He found Christ. He found Jesus. He found Jesus. And God saved this man. And he ended up marrying Rebecca. And now they have four kids. And, and he went to seminary. And he's got a doctorate in Old Testament languages, which I don't have a clue what to do with that. Right? And he's an elder in a church. And he's still a brilliant man, but now he's a brilliant man furthering the gospel. He wanted to find a problem or problems and he couldn't find any. And God broke him. But the Jewish leaders wouldn't do that. They wouldn't investigate. They wouldn't investigate. Well, let's go to the second point. The just testimony. The unjust trial, but now the just testimony. In verses 62 to 64. And the high priest arose and said, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, Caiaphas, he's frustrated. He's frustrated because it looks like that, that the, this trial is falling apart because the false witnesses are coming up short. So he says to Jesus, what do you have to say about all, all these accusations coming against you? Hoping that Jesus would say something to condemn himself, to bury himself. But we read in verse 63, he kept silent. Right? Which is prophesied back from Isaiah 57.3, which says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And Peter would later say in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Well, Jesus says nothing. So Caiaphas tries a different tactic. He tries to get Jesus to incriminate himself, which, of course, is not legal. And he asks him before God, or he puts him under the oath of the living God, if he is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. Now, putting him under an oath is a saying as if, swear by God, the God who lives forever. Swear by him, the one who hears every word you say, and the one, and now you stand in his presence. In other words, you're saying this. Listen, swear by God because you know that he knows the truth. Are you the Christ? Right? Or the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And when he asks him, are you the Son of God? He is asking him if he is one with God. If he is equal to God. If they are the same in nature. So to Caiaphas, the Son of God, that means God. Right? The Son of God is God to him. And, and, and Jesus has already said both, yes to both of these things, at different times in his ministry, but never to such a pointed question. And Caiaphas thinks he's got him nailed here. And here's why. Because if Jesus says no, the Sanhedrin, they'd have to let him go at this point, although they'll probably still stone him or something in some back alley. Right? But they've got to let him go. But here's what will happen. His ministry will be shot. It'll fizzle out because remember, just days before, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Messiah language. That's king language. And they would say, listen, he's already said he's not the king. He's already said he has denied he's the Messiah. He has denied he's the son of David. That's it. The people are done with him. Well, Sanhedrin say, this man's a failure. You can't trust this guy. But if he says yes, he says, yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the son of God. Well, then they've got him on blasphemy. And blasphemy is to speak with contempt about God or to be defiantly irreverent to him. And Leviticus 24.16 says the penalty... For blaspheming God was death. Death for blaspheming God. Now in Luke's Gospel, before Jesus says, I am, before he says he affirms this, he says something else here. Right? And Luke gives it to us in verses uh, 22, 67, and 68. He says, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. In other words, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin, if I show you from the Scriptures that I am the Messiah and, and from my works that I have done, the miracles I have done, that I am the Son of God, you won't believe it. You won't believe it. Your minds are made up already. Your hearts are rock hard and set on murder. 
Because if you really wanted to know, if you really wanted to know if I was the Christ and the Son of God, you would go to my mother Mary and you would ask her if she was a virgin when she conceived me. Because Isaiah 7.14 says, A virgin will conceive and have a son who would be Emmanuel God with us. And she would tell you, Yes, I was. She would tell you that. And, and, and if you really wanted to know, you would ask her, Hey, where was Jesus born? And she would say to you, well, he was born in Bethlehem. Because Micah 5.2 says that the Messiah must be born in, in Bethlehem. Right? And if you were to search the lineages, you would know that I am from the seed of David. And you would also know that one like Elijah had to precede me. And you would know that it was John the Baptist who you rejected and also were quite, quite pleased when Herod put him to death. And if you would reread and meditate on Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and see what the works the Messiah was to do, right? What he would, he would do, and then you would consider what I have been doing for the last three and a half years, well, you'd have your answer. I wouldn't have to give you the answer here. You see, if they wanted to know who he was, the evidence was there. But crying out loud, he just raised Lazarus from the dead. But crying out loud, he just put... Malchus's ear back on some way. He just did it. He just did it an hour before. Right? He just did it. It's all over the place. But they don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. Which is why they attribute all of his miraculous powers to who? Satan. Oh, he's demonic. He gets his power from Satan. You really wanted to know the evidence is there. But they don't really want to know. They just want him dead. They just want him dead, and they want him out of their way. Why? Well, we find out just in the next couple of verses, when he has his interview or examination or trial with, with Pilate, Pilate knows the reason they want to put him to death is because of envy. They hate him because the people love him. They hate him because he teaches like no man ever taught before. They hate him because he condemns them for their hypocrisy. They hate him because he can do miraculous things that no man can do but him. And the people are swayed towards him. Envious. So they want him dead. Well, Jesus cannot deny himself, so he says, it is as you say, and more directly in Mark, he says, I am. You bet I'm the Messiah. You bet I'm the chosen one. And I'm also God, God in the flesh. Right? And, 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 and he's crystal clear on it here. All, all, during, all during his ministry, he wasn't crystal clear on it because it wasn't his time. So he would say, don't say anything. Or just go show yourself to the priest, right? He would, he would, like when you know, uh, when 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 Mary wanted him to, to, to you know, we don't have any wine, it's all done. Right? What does it have to do with me, right? It wasn't his time. He wasn't ready yet to reveal himself full blown. He had to do his work. He had to do the works the Father had set to him to do until he did the major work or the final work, which was the cross. And so he didn't want to truncate that in any way. He didn't want to in any way, you know, you know. Uh, 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 have anything happen that would in any way alter that, which is why he, he, gets, out of, he gets out of Jerusalem and goes up to, to, uh, to Galilee, right? Which is why he leaves when he finds out that, that Herod is interested in him. Because he must go to the cross at a certain day, at a certain time, the Passover. He must. All the evidence was there. All the evidence was there. They wanted to know they could know. Right? But they want him dead. They want him out of the way. They're envious of him. He can't deny himself. Yes, I am who I, you say I am. And the Bible is crystal clear on it. He's crystal clear. Right? But that, that doesn't stop right there because Jesus continues. He says, not only am I, not only am I God's son, right? not only uh, am I the son, but you will also see the son again. I'm not going to stay dead. I will rise again. And when I do, I will be exalted to the right hand of God where I will have and be given all authority and all power. And I will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Now you see me all sweaty and bloody and in chains and abandoned by my followers. And quite honestly, it doesn't look like I'm a king at all I know. Right? And it seems to you I am seemingly helpless. But I have chosen this path. I have chosen this. Right? And I am doing everything to march to that cross. No one is taking my life from me. I am giving it freely. Because I have a people to buy. I have people to win to myself. I have to do that. And I want to do that. And I am empowered by the Holy Spirit now. And in my flesh, I was struggling. But oh, now I'm good. I'm good to go. Right? And, it, and I know it doesn't look good from this way, but I have, I have a chosen way to go, and I have chosen this path that I can redeem, and I must redeem my people. 
But a day is coming. A day is coming when you and all men will see me coming in blazing glory to sit on my throne of glory. And I am coming with my holy angels and I'm separating people. I'm separating the sheep, those are my people, and the goats, those are everyone who doesn't believe, whoever they are. Right? And when he comes on the clouds of heaven with all power and great glory, guess what? The Sanhedrin and those who pierced them and all the tribes of the earth, they will mourn. And mourn means wail, wail in terror. And as Revelation 6.16 says, they will beg, beg the mountains and the rocks to fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Everybody knows. That's the thing. Everybody's going to know. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in Jesus. He's a figment of people's imagination. Oh, you say that now. And you can believe whatever you want believe now. But you will know one day he is the king. And you ain't going to like it. And, and, and I just get a kick out of people who say, well, when I see Jesus, I'm going to tell him, I don't, stop there. No one's telling them anything. No one is telling them anything. You're going to be on the ground Forget about pleading for mercy. There's no mercy anymore. Mercy's done. It'll be brutal. Someone asked me the other day, you think hell is real? I said, Jesus did. Sure I do. What do you think it's like? I said, I'm glad I don't have to think about that too much. I said, but, I said, I think it's worse than we can imagine, just as I think heaven is greater than we can imagine. I said, and nobody talked more about hell in the scriptures than Jesus. And, and I don't know what's literal and what's figurative. I, I, I tend to think that he gives us a lot of figurative language because we can't grasp just the, 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 the brutalness and the misery of it in our, our minds. I said, but man, he keeps telling us how brutal and, 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 and just horrific it is. So why would anybody not take that seriously? Why would you think he's joking? Or it's like, it's, you know, ah, just endure it. How bad could it be? I'll be with my buddies. I have no buddies. Right? So he's saying, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Right? So, so the Caiaphases and the, and, the, and the Sanhedrin, they're all going to be wailing an uncontrollable terror because the one that they put to death, they're going to see is their eternal judge. Right? And, and the thing is, they had the God-man in their midst. And they had undeniable proofs that it was Him. And you know what they said? Get rid of Him. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Right? We will not believe in Him. We will not submit to Him. We will not worship Him. And let me tell you, this is what every person in essence says, who when they hear the gospel, they say, not now, not for me, I don't want it. Oh, it's good for you. I'm glad you found something you like. It's not for me. Well, Caiaphas and Sanhedrin don't want to hear the truth. But in the future, they will see the truth. You see, now Jesus doesn't look like a king to them at all. He doesn't look like the Son of God to them. But they're greatly mistaken. Right? It's kind of like that show I watch once in a while. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's called Undercover Boss. That's where the CEO of some company goes undercover. And he, he disguises himself. You know, fake beard, fake hair, whatever. Makes himself look like, 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 like you know, not, not like a CEO, I guess. Uh, and he goes in, and, and it's all being filmed, of course, and he's like working at the lowest level of the company, like the mailroom guy or something. He's going in, and, and, and he's going in for the purpose of seeing how it works from the bottom up. Because most guys on the top don't really know all the stuff on the bottom, right? And so I like, I like the concept of it. And he, and he goes in, and he, he works all like the, like the low-level jobs. You know, he's cutting things, he's mailing things, he's, he's packaging things, whatever. And he's working with the people at the lowest level, but he finds out some stuff. He finds out who hates the company, who curses the boss to his face, don't even know it, right? Who's pilfering from the company. And there are some good eggs in it too, actually, right? And then at the end of the show, right, he, he, he brings them into his office. They don't know that it's him now and he's dressed regular. Now it looks like himself. And they're like, it's like the shock of, especially if they were bad, right? The shock that they're before him, right? And so, uh, you know, it, it, they, they get found out in the end if they've done something bad. And there's this like shock and fear. But here's the thing. If you misread the CEO, you get fired. If you misread the Christ, you get the lake of fire. Big difference. Big difference. 
Well, after Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ, the Son of God, he alludes to two Old Testament messianic texts, which of course he applies to himself. In Daniel 7.13, it says there, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And then in Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so Jesus is basically saying, Listen guys, my death will usher me into God's presence. And I will sit at His right hand. And I will be the King of Kings. So beware. Watch out. Take note. Because I'm coming back again. And when I do, it'll be to judge, judge all unbelievers and all those who have rejected me. And this is a great warning. And this is a really a great mercy to the Sanhedrin. Because he's telling them one last time, judgment is coming and I'm the one you're going to stand before. But it's also a great warning for us today as well. Because he is coming back again. And everyone in this room is going to stand before him. Either on his right side or on his left side. And so we see the unjust trial. Secondly, the just testimony and now the unjust verdict. Verses 65 to 68. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, look, now you've heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He's deserving of death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. Another struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Well, Jesus answers and says, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And you'll see me when I return in glory to judge you. And Caiaphas thinks, I've hit the jackpot. I have hit the jackpot, right? And in a show of great theatrics, great theatrics, for his supposed horror at the dishonor of God, he tears his clothes. He tears his clothes. And tearing clothes was usually a sign of either great woe, great sorrow, or of repentance. And now here's the thing about the high priest, though. In Leviticus 10.16, the high priest was not allowed to do this. Everyone else could do it, but the high priest couldn't do it. But Caiaphas breaks laws and protocol and everything else to show just how distraught he is that Jesus would make such a claim and dishonor his God. Right? And he says at that point, stop the trial. We're done. We don't need any more witnesses. Right? We don't need to hear anything else because Jesus has just blasphemed the living God. So he says to the Sanhedrin, what do you guys think? And they say, well, he's deserving of death. Right? Now they have the smoking gun. It's there. It's in their hand. They got it. He is claimed to be God. Right? And at once they started to abuse him. And whether these abusers are the actual members of the Sanhedrin or the temple guard who was part of the, uh, the arresting crew or both, we don't know. But what they do is they spit in his face. They start by spitting in his face. And I've got to tell you, that is the most demeaning, demoralizing of acts. You know what it says when you spit in someone's face? You're worthless. You are a worthless human being. You are garbage to me. Right? That's what it's saying. And listen, anytime I've ever seen anybody get spit in someone else, someone that spit in their face, it always ends in a, in a slugfest. Right? It is never good. It is the height of, hum, of, 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 of humiliating somebody. And what makes this more horrendous is they spit in the most beautiful, the most lovely face ever known to man. They spit in the face of the very one that was keeping their hearts beating. And they spit in the face of the very one that was keeping their lungs breathing. And they beat him and they punched him in the face. And Mark says they blindfolded him and they punched him. Right? And they mocked him saying, Hey Christ, who hit you? Hey Christ, who hit you? Right? So they, they made a mockery of their maker. They made sport of the Son of God. And you know what? This makes us angry, doesn't it? Can you read this and not get a little like boiled up like that? Right? I mean, I do. Right? There are certain things when you hear about them, you get a little like revved up about it. Right? We don't like reading about such injustice done to the just one. But let us not forget this. We were mockers. And we were haters. And we made sport of the Word of God. And we spit in His face, figuratively speaking. How did we do that? By worshiping and serving the creature rather than the Creator. By bowing down to the idols of our hearts. While we were swimming in sin and loving every minute of it, right? The Lord did not strike us dead. And He would have been just to do so. You understand that. He is unbelievably patient. Romans 2 says He is so patient and long-suffering with us. Right? 
He would have every right. He would be right to just annihilate and wipe us all out like that. Boom! Toast us all. But He didn't do that. He didn't punch us in our faces. He didn't punch our lights out. He didn't spit in our faces, although we certainly deserved it. And here's why He didn't. Because He came to save mockers. And He came to save punchers and spitters. He came to save and deliver degenerates. And that would be people like me and you. You know that. That would be people like me and you. And because He came to deliver sinners, He allowed Himself to be abused by men so that He could accomplish the cross. That's humility. That's Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Listen, you and I would want to defend ourselves. That's it. I can't take it anymore. Right? I mean, like, like abuse after abuse after abuse. And when we get to chapter 27, it's one long series of abuses. But he never says anything. He never defends himself. He never sets the record straight. He never answers any accusations. He doesn't have to. Because he's absolutely focused on the mission. Absolutely focused on the mission. And we'll get more into that when we get into 27. Right? But, but God came to save people like this. People that, that, that abuse other people. Right? And that's why Jesus allowed himself to be abused by men. So that he could accomplish the cross. Right? In Isaiah 50 verse 6, speaking of the Messiah, we read, he's saying, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheek to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. I didn't do that. Well, the Sanhedrin accused them of blasphemy. When in actuality, they're the blasphemers. Right? They spoke of the Son of God with contempt. They were defiant and irreverent towards Him. And in actuality, I know it doesn't seem like that to them, and maybe to a lot of the world today, they're the ones on trial. Right? Because apart from divine grace, their verdict is going to be guilty. Oh, the great love of Jesus. The great love of Jesus. Well, in closing, let me draw your attention to what the Sanhedrin said in verse 66. And that was that Jesus was deserving of death. He is deserving of death. Now, He is not deserving of death for blasphemy or for any of the accusations that any man has ever charged Him with. But He is deserving of death from God's perspective. You see, he was, when He was standing before the Sanhedrin, He was standing as God's representative for sinners. And as our representative, He's taking upon Himself the payment of our laundry list of sins. He is now becoming guilty before the living God for every sin that I would ever commit and that you would ever commit if you believe. So the holy and the blameless one is now taking upon himself the unholiness and, and what we're to be blamed for, our sins and our guilt for our sins. You know, the Jewish leaders are charging him with death because they hate him. But God is charging him with death because he loves sinners like us. So then Jesus did deserve to die. He did deserve to be condemned because his condemnation eradicated our condemnation. And it did that forever. The one who was highest of all went lowest of all, even to the death on the cross, so that he could redeem our sorry souls, so that he could redeem those who figuratively have spit in his face and mocked at him and blasphemed him. And as the hymn writer said, and I love this, what wondrous love is this? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul Oh, my soul. And this is a wondrous love. A love too great for you and I to fully comprehend. A love that moved Jesus to, to take upon Himself the wrath that you and I deserve. Which is, of course, hell. And the terrors of it. And He did it for who? For children of wrath. For the sons of disobedience. For those who deserve exactly what they would get. And this should cause every believer to stand afresh, uh, uh, amazed afresh, right? That, that, that God loves us in Christ Jesus, right? And this love for us, that He has for us, should constrain us and compel us to live for His glory, right? Or as Dylan said in the one song, to, 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 uh, to, to basically submit our lives to Him, right? To be a, a living sacrifice, 
Romans 12, 1 and 2. Like, we owe Him everything. Not that he, that, that he gains anything by us, but He's given us everything and now He wants our hearts. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't need our stuff and what we do, but He wants us to give Him everything. And He wants us to be sold out for Him in every way. Here's why. Because He is worth it. Because He's God. Because He loves us. And we should want to know that love more deeply. And we should want to make that love known. Now many hear the good news of the Gospel and the great news of the love of Jesus Christ. And they're just not interested. They are not moved. Nothing changes. They are not moved by that. Aren't really worried about seeing Christ when He comes again because quite honestly, they don't really believe He will come again or if He does... They don't think it's that bad. Or, quite honestly, I'm very busy right now. Maybe talk to me when I retire or when things settle down and I'll think about these things. But they're not interested. Alright? They are not interested. But here's the thing. Right? If you are unsaved today, you need to know this. Jesus Christ will be your final destination. I don't even believe in Him. Don't make a difference. He will be your final destination. You will stand before Jesus. Every man will stand before Jesus. And you will stand there with Caiaphas. And you will stand there with Judas. And you will stand there with the Sanhedrin. And every other unbeliever and rejecter of Jesus. You will stand with them. And you cannot escape it. You have a reservation and this one cannot be canceled. You will stand there on that day. Therefore, in light of that, I would urge you, as a minister of the Gospel, to take another look at the one who said that he was the Christ and who said that he was the Son of God and seriously consider seriously consider his promise that he said he would rise from the dead three days later and one day he would come back and judge all men. And see him standing before the Sanhedrin, not as a a victim, not as a defeated man, but as your representative, as your sin representative. And trust in him and confess your sins to him and and cry out to him for forgiveness. And guess what? He will forgive you. He will forgive you. And his cross will bring you a crown. Amen? Let's pray as the ushers come forward. Our Father in God, what an amazing, merciful, loving, magnificent God you are. How glorious that you would put a plan into place to save rebels and rejectors. Lord, we just praise you and thank you for it. We pray for those who know you in this room. Oh God, may our hearts be overflowing for you. May we live, Lord, with all of our might. Lord, may we be single-minded for the glory of God in all things. And Lord, for those who don't know you, oh God, only you can save them. Only you can draw them. Only you can cause them to bow the knee and lean the heart towards Christ. We pray that you would do that. And now, Lord, as we would give back to you, Lord, we know you don't need money. But Lord, you want us to trust you. You want us to be, uh, Lord, lavish with all things that you have given us back to you. So I pray that we would be generous givers and cheerful givers for the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn more about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.